0: Hey folks, welcome to Over 50 Starting Over. I'm Barry Edwards. And today we are joined by Dr. Glenn Livingston. I do a proper introduction uh, as soon as he comes in here. I just finished the show with him and I felt the need to do an introduction because there's a lot of things that I was not able to get to in the interview. And I want to get across the importance of his new book, Defeat Your Cravings. And I had him on the show episode 224. You could see that at over 50startingover.com slash uh, 224. And that was a terrific show. He's very fun to talk to, so much so that I, I interrupt and get him off track quite a bit. But I just enjoy our conversations. I wanted to mention that in his book, Defeat Your Cravings, it Gives the set that probably last two thirds of it gives so much science and practice behind techniques to actually employ to control your cravings. About the last two thirds of the book is entirely about the practice and even the science behind. Uh, practices that you can use to control your cravings so that it's not just telling you what to do. It's making you understand why you're doing it and why it works. And when you're convinced, then you can better employ these techniques. It's a terrific book. And I wanted to show you that um, in order to get it, simply go to defeatyourcravings.com. And you got your free book and bonuses right here. It's a terrific website, easy to navigate. There's that handsome guy right there. Uh, And thank you again, Glenn. That was a very terrific interview. Go to over50startingover.com, sign up and get each episode and its notes in your email box as it happens. Please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you enjoy watching the show on YouTube, please subscribe and share Thank you. hope you enjoyed the show. All right, Dr. Glenn Livingston, welcome uh, once again back to Over 50 Starting Over. How are you today?
1: Thank you so very much. I'm great. I've been looking forward to talking to you. I just want to turn off my phone. That's the one thing I forgot, but please get us started and I'm on with you.
0: Yeah, very good call. Yeah, I certainly appreciate that. While you're doing that, let me uh, go through this really great introduction for you. So bear with us for a minute. Okay, Dr. Glenn Livingston is a leading expert on overeating, stress eating, and binge eating, and the resulting obesity and behavioral problems manifested. He's the author of Never Binge Again, which has over 1 million readers thus far, and many other related books. Dr. Livingston's latest book, Defeat Your Cravings, is a I didn't say that. Well, Defeat Your Cravings is a comprehensive update to Never Binge Again and his previous work. It utilizes his experience with thousands of clients and includes scientific research into cravings formation and extinction, as well as the impact our community and food industry has on eating behavior. This book dramatically reduces impossible to resist cravings. It will reduce frequency of of giving in. By 85% of more, you'll recover faster from your mistakes and think less about food and more about life. Glenn Livingston, PhD, is a veteran psychologist and also the CEO of a multi-former, CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. That was quite a learning experience we talked about last time. You may have seen his or his company's previous work, theories and research in major periodicals like the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Chicago Sun-Times, the Indiana Star-Ledger, the New York Daily News, American Demographics, many other and many other major media outlets. You may have also heard him on ABC, WGN, and or CBS Radio or UPN-TV. Dr. Livingston's approach is very different from traditional psychology and self-help books about food obsession. He's refined his approach over several decades via work with uh, on his patients, with his patients and even self-funded research programs with more than 40,000 participants, but perhaps most importantly, his own journey out of food obsession and obesity and into a normal, healthy relationship with food is his greatest asset. Again, Hi. welcome to the show. Go ahead.
1: I have to take you around with me to introduce me. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, if you could come with me to parties and stuff. like Oh, that I, would
0: I, be great. Yeah, that'd be I, great. Well, you have quite an interesting resume. You're a very busy guy. You, uh, When in your book you said, well, you know, we didn't have kids, so I decided to start a second career. Not like a side, bit, a side hustle. No, you start a whole major ad agency, a marketing company. I mean- oh, I, I,
1: I, did, I didn't start that. My ex-wife started it, but I started a whole other division of it. I um, see. I, I, I am a busy guy. I've done a lot of things. I, well, I you something. can't
0: sit still. Right, right,
1: right, right, right. right. <laughs>
0: uh, you know, I want to ask you just to give us a, a framework here. In, oh, by the way, I wanted to mention to you guys that in our previous episode, it was uh, February of this year. It seemed like quite a while ago, but that was, you could see that at over 50 starting slash 224 and it was a really special uh, episode for me i learned a lot from it i really enjoyed it and i'll just say you ended it the last the last couple minutes i was we were kind of up against the time crunch and i said you know my big problem is um negative self talk and you go do you want a 90 second uh Briefing on how to deal with that. And I said, Yeah, because, you know, for the last 20, 30 years, 30 years easy, I've been reading psychologists tell me that uh, this is a side of my personality wants to come into a party, but I keep the door closed. And so it starts banging harder and harder. And uh, I'm supposed to invite it into the party and hug it and love it and make friends with it. And you said to me, You really want to let a, psych- a, a psychopath into your party? And right there, I was like, Wow. I'd never heard somebody of authority give me that permission before to even think like that. It was mind blowing and changing life-changing too, as well. So I want to get back to the subject at hand. I just want to say that your experience is profound and uh, reaches a lot of different areas.
1: The the reason I said that, by the way, Mm -hmm. is that, um, one of the methodologies for behavioral change that we use, and we we do use this above and beyond um, food problems, it is to separate your mind into constructive versus destructive thoughts. And the reason that that's important, for example, with regards to food, um, is because at the moment of impulse, you need something that's going to wake you up and say, who's in charge here? And if you draw a line in the sand, like I I will only ever have chocolate on Saturdays. You can assume that any thought that suggests that you have chocolate during the week is a destructive thought because you came up with that line in the sand when you were of sound mind in the body and you had the fortitude to sit down and think through what was best for you. Um, the problem with the, the the traditional psychological approach, in my estimation, I don't have third-party clinical trials to prove this, but but in my estimation, the problem is that it's a, it's an overextension of the Gestalt and Jungian shadow, you know, work to say that you have to love all thoughts and welcome all parts of yourself into yourself. Um, we, we have we have animalistic thoughts that are destructive to our better nature. Um, we, 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 you know, we have thoughts that will say, we'll just start again tomorrow. It'll be just as easy. You know, start your silly rule again tomorrow. Well, it's not just as easy because neuroplasticity says what fires together, wires together. And um, if you have the thought just start tomorrow, and you have a bar of chocolate uh, on a Wednesday afternoon, and then you've broken your rule, and you're more likely to have that same thought the next day and and a deeper craving. So you always have to use the, the present moment to be healthy. If your perspective is well, this is really hiding a wounded inner child, and so. Um, I'm not going to do what it says, but I'm really going to love the thought recognize there's something wounded in me after that um, you, you're really you're really sacrificing the ability to wake up at that moment of temptation and say who's in charge. And it's not like I don't believe in the concept of an inner wounded child um you can analyze that later on and say, well, am I hurting about something but when you're, when you're creating these fictitious entities in your mind for the purpose of behavioral control, you want to recognize that all it cares about by definition is um, is the junk. All it cares about is breaking the rule and it doesn't matter how much it hurts you. And so you really, um, you, you kind of get have to get tough with it. It's a This is an alpha dog approach, alpha yeah. wolf approach to being the boss of your own mind. Mm-hmm. You know, th- think of your bladder. Like, like if your bladder said, I really have to pee right now. Um, would you let it in charge and say, Oh, you poor baby. And, you know, I'm sorry that you're hurting. You say, no, I've, I've got other things to do. I'm not going to ignore it, but I've got other things to do. I'm in charge. No, you know, shut up and go back to your cage and I will, um, I'll do my thing. So yeah, don't, don't let your psychopath into the party.
0: I like that. I like that a lot. You use a very common sense approach to everything. I never feel like I'm getting lost in psycho babble. When I'm uh, reading your books and so on. And I just finished the latest one uh, just this morning. So it's very fresh in my mind. But for the audience, let's just start with a little base basis here. Uh, why are overeating, stress eating, and binge eating just so common in our culture today?
1: Well, there are hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars being thrown at engineering these hyper palatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and exciter toxins. Um, and it's designed to hit the bliss point in your reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. Then an approximately equal amount of money goes into advertising those wares to make us believe that they're good for us. Uh, they, they leverage a function called plausible deniability. So, you know, this, these potato chips are now made with avocado oil, Therefore, they're good for you, right?
0: for that, yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah. ignores the facts that virtually every study with heated oil shows that it's carcinogenic. Um, The baking process for the chips also creates acrylamides, which are carcinogenic, and there's very little nutrition in a very small package with an awful lot of calories. Nobody really thinks potato chips are good for you, but it turns out that all the brain really needs is enough justification to let the reptilian brain do its thing. It just needs plausible deniability, and it it can go forward with the purchase and the, and the behavior. Um, So, and you know that you can walk out of one convenience store filled with hundreds of thousands of calories of bags and boxes and containers um, of not just potato chips, but, you know, cookies and cakes and all types of, of treats. Um, And right across the street, you're going to see another one in most major metropolises. So, you know, it's, it's really a perfect storm. And then you get the wrong information from the culture about how to lose weight. First of all, our culture is largely one tacit agreement to slowly kill ourselves with food. Mm. Um, well, you know, what well, we laugh it off and just say, oh, I guess I'll start tomorrow and, you know, just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt and ha, 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 ha. Mm. But, you know, pe- people are dying. This is, this is serious stuff. Um, and then we're told to eat everything in moderation. Like 90% of the time, eat good, indulge yourself 10% of the time. Nobody tells you how to decide. How do you know which is the 10% uh, decision-making is what drains your willpower. Willpower is the ability to make good decisions. You only get so much every day. So if you're making decisions all week long, um, all day long, you're draining your, your willpower all day long. That's why so many people have trouble overeating at night. They start out with the best of intentions and they just can't sustain it.
0: So you know, I'm sorry. I have to tell you this, that I, I went into uh, Lisa's office, my partner um, and I was so excited about some of these tips. This is towards probably two thirds of three quarters of the way through your book that uh, about being uh, mindful about preparing the right kind of foods and something that you look forward to uh, for, say, an evening dinner, things like that, because you are out of decision making willpower by that time. and And Lisa does this. For every day of the week. She she makes she cooks all these vegetables on Sunday and prepares them. And okay, she's a little regimented, I have to say. But I mean, my hat's off to her. She doesn't have an ounce of fat on her. She's uh in perfect shape. We're both 57 years old, and and I I really admire what she does. And I could take a little bit of her advice, your advice for sure. So it works, it absolutely works.
1: Yeah. But Food prep is helpful. Eliminating decisions during the week is helpful. Yeah. yeah you, you don't have to be a saint about any of this to do remarkably better, but um, it's helpful to eliminate decisions.
0: You know, I've uh, learned in this past year, I'd say you just brought it up a minute ago about the dangers of seed oils. I... um You know, I've been through the store trying to find I want to crunch, I just want to I'll try to find a healthy snack, the avocado potato chips fallen for that 100 times, and things like that. But I've only recently become aware of how all of these seed oils have been um, adopted by the food industry. They're originally just byproducts of Using the seeds for other things in the food industry, the the oil was a byproduct, so it started. They started being used in industrial machinery as lubricant, lubricants. But then the food industry said, "Oh, that's so cheap, we can actually fry stuff using that." And yeah. is there is there just one? Is there any seed oil like, I maybe not coconut? Is coconut a seed oil? And can you fry with that? I I'm
1: not. A nutritional expert. Oh, okay. I, I'm, I'm more of an expert of how to stick to the rules that you want to stick to. Okay.
0: Um,
1: I can tell you my understanding because I'm a nutritional buff. Mm-hmm. And I, I I don't think that there is an oil tree in nature. And so I think that you're re- removing fiber and lignans. And then I don't think there's such a thing as fried oil in nature. So I think you're creating compounds that the body's not prepared to deal with. I know that some oils are safer to fry with, with other, than others than others. But generally speaking, I'm not sure that frying is a is a good idea for us. Just like smoke, just like smoking is not a good idea. You're 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 taking in the byproducts of um, excessive heat. I'm I'm not sure it's a good idea.
0: Yeah. Okay. No. Sorry. Don't shoot the messenger. Yeah, But uh, I, I my understanding was coconut oil, which is delicious, by the way, is one of the least harmful to fry with. But I don't know. I was asking because I'm not sure. It's always been a mystery to me. And I think it's like coffee. You can ask, ask a scientist or something every other month, and they're going to have a different opinion on it. Well, well, I think
1: my friend Howard Jacobson wrote a book called Whole with T. Colin Campbell. And I think part of the problem – with the um confusion in the in the press and the literature Uh, it isn't so much that we don't know what's good for us and what's bad for us it's that the press will take junk science and run with it there's a difference in studies you know a study is better if it's a longer study with more people and a study that looks at hard endpoints like um You know, death or heart attacks or strokes or cancer. But a lot of studies are just looking at soft endpoints like, you know, cholesterol or um, blood oxidation. And, And so it's not that they're useless, but they're a lot less stable and they'll tend to conflict with each other. And for example, cancer takes 20 years to develop. So you have all these studies that are done for two or three years on a small number of people. And I went to a scientist practitioner program. We studied research methodology for nine years. Um, No one in the press really does that. So they don't really know how to evaluate one study versus the next. And as a result, people like good news about their bad habits. So you're much more likely to get press if you have something that says chocolate is good for you or it's okay to eat eggs and bacon now. And You know, it's, it's, um, we want good news about our bad habits and yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and, And
1: there's, it's the same reason that there are five to seven thousand messages about uh, bags and boxes and containers on the airwaves, and you know only about a half a dozen about having more whole produce, because there's just not there's just not money in selling whole produce the same That's way.
0: That's very true. I mean, I don't want to go down this road because we talk about it from time to time on this podcast, but the FDA pretty much got bought out by food lobbyists, and I think it was the '70s. It may have been the '60s. And that was really when you started to see the, the turn and the uh, obesity epidemic start to rise in America. So that's a huge problem. Did you know this? I heard this recently, that Subway, the, the sandwich shop, the fast food sandwich shop, uh, located in the Germany, and their version of their FDA said that they must call their, their bread um, pastry. Because the amount of sugar content in it. Oh, wow. I uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, I normally would think I'm not doing that bad with Subway. I mean, I know it's processed meat, but, you know, it, it beats a McDonald's or something. But there's it, it seems to be so easy to hide the large amounts of high fructose corn syrup into about anything. And, and you think, well, it doesn't taste sweet, but it still has that addictive, very harmful chemical in there.
1: And it has a similar impact on your glycemic um, on the blood sugar. Going up mm. and down I I just remembered there's actually I think a law in California that requires prominent notice for employees of fast food restaurants that are exposed to the vapor from um from fr- from frying because yeah. apparently the vapor itself can be carcinogenic I would so, think so. Um, yeah. Anyway, when you and I are running the world, things will be different. Uh,
0: yeah, they certainly would be. Don't get me started down uh, all the yeah. things that are going on in this world right now. Uh, lots of different things to ask you about. Not even sure where to start. Um, how would you like to I would like to introduce your book. And I did, I think, in the intro a bit as a sequel. To Never Binge Again. Would you say that that is uh, correct? Yeah, it's,
1: it's a comprehensive update. It, it's better to read Defeat Your Cravings than Never Binge Again at this point. Um, there there are several things that are upgraded and different about it. Um, w- one of the main things is the original book was mostly about fixing your thinking about food. You would draw very clear lines in the sand, and then you would define this inner enemy. I fortunately and unfortunately called it my inner pig. Um, I was never going to teach this. This was just how I recovered myself. And then you listen for your inner pig to suggest that you cross these lines. When it does say something, then you work to disempower it. So you're taking away your logical excuses. Um, You know, just one bite is going to hurt. Well, it's it's never a bite. And one bite is a difference between letting my pig be in charge and me being in charge. It's a whole different way of life. One bite is a tragedy. So you, you listen very carefully for these articulations of reasons to reverse your intent and break the rules that you had. Um, over the course of eight years and a million readers and working with about 2,000 clients and groups and a whole bunch of coaches, we got really, really good at fixing people's thinking fast. You know, It, it took me years to recover 20 years ago, 18 years ago. Um, we get most people to a 89, 90% reduction in overeating episodes within a month if they if they engage, people that don't use the tools that don't engage, you don't really get anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they engage, we get a tremendous result. We fix people's thinking quickly. What's, what's the 10%, what's missing with the 10% and why does it drop down? If you go to the six month mark, people are not doing quite as well. It, also varies depending on whether they're using the tools or not, but generally around 55, 60%, something like that. So what what was missing? There seemed to be a chink in the armor. And even though it was better than a lot of programs, I wanted to fix that. So I thought carefully about what, I, what else I did to recover, because while the thought fixing was my primary focus, and I was mostly interested in the cognitive elements, because it came after decades for me of trying to love myself thin and when I mean yeah. I went the tra- traditional approach right? I said oh boy baby I've got a hole in my heart if I can right. just fill that that hole then I'm not gonna have to fill the hole in my stomach um you know I tr- I tried to kind of wussy myself out of out of overeating for for 20 years it just didn't work um and I I dieted my way up to about 300 pounds is one of my coach coaches might like to say um but but um the other things I would do, I realized, would eliminate the organismic distress. They're like genuine physiological needs, sometimes psychological needs that I was not attending to that seemed to be causing this. Screw it, just do it response. Mm-hmm. See, see, the reptilian brain has the ability to push the rational brain out of the way when it feels there's an emergency. These emergencies are usually not rational, but it. That's the whole point. It has the ability to get rid of your rational thinking since say just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt right. so that all the thought work that you do, it kind of can go out the window at that moment. It doesn't have to. You can fight it. Um, But how do you prevent that from happening in the first place? Like I call that the screw it, just do it response, mm-hmm. right? Or, or getting a case of the efforts. Um, and I said, well, if I think back, I would get a case of the efforts when I hadn't eaten appropriately. Like, not that I'd broken my rules, but I'd skip breakfast or I didn't have enough, I didn't have enough vegetables or I hadn't drunk enough water or I wasn't getting enough minerals in some way that when I, when I was eating really well and very reliably, I wouldn't get the, I wouldn't get a case of the efforts. Mostly. The other things that could cause a case of the efforts would, would be, being overwhelmed with decision-making. We -hmm. talked about willpower a little bit before. It turns out it's not just food decisions that wear down our willpower. It's more like a general willpower tank. And there are studies that show that people have trouble resisting marshmallows if you force them to do math problems and make decisions about the right answers beforehand. So it's, who's going to take Jenny to soccer practice? Or what am I going to do with this email? Am I going to delegate it or, or defer it or or delay it? What, what am I going to do or reply to it? Um, and so when, when I started having people take a few minutes a day of decision-free breaks, they were doing a little better. Just five minutes. Step out of the rat race, put down your phone, take a couple of breaths. Um, then I recognized that I I'd had kind of a bad date with a woman who gave me a really profound insight um she, she said, when she found out what I did and the books that i written, she said, oh, well, I used to binge eat, um, but I stopped when I started doing 20 minutes of yoga at night instead. And I said, that's interesting. What is it about the yoga? And she couldn't quite tell me, but I talked to a bunch of yoga teachers and I realized that there's a particular type of breathing that they encourage in yoga, um, which it's called parasympathetic breathing. It takes you out of a state of, urgent doing and into more of a state of mindful being Um, has to do with breathing out for longer than you breathe in, which makes sense because if you were being chased by a hungry bear and there really was an emergency, you wouldn't have the time to breathe out for longer than you breathe in. So I started telling people to take a 7-Eleven breath. I said, the moment you hear your pig is about to, is about to try to convince you to do something, take a 7-Eleven breath and see if you can calm yourself down and that i would describe that as prying open the space between stimulus and response so that that really started to help people um then there were you know there were things like drinking enough water getting enough sleep maintaining enough social contact we are we're pack animals we're not really meant to be alone um and so i mean you have to be alone sometimes but but mm-hmm. When people felt too isolated, there was a sense of organismic distress, and you could think, a hundred thousand years ago, it must have been pretty scary to be alone. You really needed the tribe to survive. Yeah. Now, you can sit in your apartment and scroll on social media, but back then, you really were, were isolated. So instinctually, there's a level of distress that we experience.
0: So, to that, Glenn, to that point, that's why we use solitary confinement as a as a punishment, as an ultimate punishment against people. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that kind of makes the point. And by the way, the 7-Eleven breaths aren't as easy as it sounds. I've been trying to do it, and it's uh, that's a long process. Uh, you mentioned that it takes a little bit of practice. I think you said that in your book.
1: What, what you can do, which I've started doing just this year with people, is you can build up to it with your. You can build your pause muscle slowly. So rather than taking a 7-Eleven breath every time before you eat something, you can build your pause muscle by going one two, three, just go one, two, three. It's annoying. It's going to feel annoying at first. The reason for that is that your brain is a calorie acquisition machine and it wants to automate calorie acquisition routines. Mm -hmm. So which a hundred thousand years ago was in our best interest because food was relatively scarce. And when we figured out a way to find and acquire calories, we wanted to do it as quickly as possible, learn it as quickly as possible, and automate it as quickly as possible too, right. just to right. save effort. And so it doesn't feel natural, but we live in an unnatural food environment. So if you want to fix that, you're gonna to have to do some things that feel unnatural at first. For sure.
0: Um, well, you know, there could be an unnatural situation that got you in the got you into a craving in the first place. You were talking about uh trying to, are, we're looking for emergency situations which activate our, our nervous system, our sympathetic nervous system, right? Uh-huh. And, and but it could be an email that rubs you the wrong way, uh, uh-huh. certain things like that. And so we get, I, I guess, since we're not being chased around by bears much anymore, that our nervous system isn't quite adapted to modern life yet. Is that, you think that's correct?
1: I think that's absolutely correct
0: look at the um
1: things like the number of scene changes in situation comedies and movies it it used to be that we had about one-third as many scenes in our entertainment but over the years people have gotten used to more and more and more simulation more frequent faster input and more supersized stimuli more more car chases, more naked people, or more semi-naked people, um, more loud noises, f- faster conversation, and you know our, our brains are just overloaded. Our, our, brain, our brains are just overloaded, and that does also create a sense of organismic distress. Um, you know, so so ultimately, I realize that you actually there is something right about the traditional psychological approach, which says you can't just fix your food, you have to fix yourself too. You you do have to take better care of yourself, but that doesn't mean that you have to overcome all of your traumas or figure out, you know, why did your mama drop you in your head and her mama dropped her in, on her head? And, you know, where where is the ancestral pain? You don't have to go through all that. You need to adopt some very practical behavioral techniques to intervene at the moment of impulse and, um, take better care of yourself so that you don't feel so uncomfortable um, with your new behaviors that you're going to want to go you know, F it. So that was a big reason I wrote the new book. I also, my ex-partner did a bunch of study on the science of cravings and how how cravings extinction really was accomplished because it's, it's not a straight line. I used to think that If I was going to give up chocolate, for example, and people don't have to give up anything on my plan, it's a diagnostic plan, and there are ways to moderate things if you want to, which two out of three people can do. Um, I used to think it would just, the hardest day would be the first, and then it would go straight down, but it doesn't really work like that. If if you want to say something, by the way, you can interrupt me because I have lots more to say about this otherwise.
0: Oh, no. I think I know where you're going with this, and I find this very interesting. So, please, go ahead and okay. finish that thought because there are setbacks that can really trigger you and set, really bring you back, and you got to okay. know how to get out of that situation.
1: Okay. What actually happens is it you have a little bit of a honeymoon period for a couple of days. Let's, let's talk about giving up, stopping at a pizzeria on the way home from work every day. Let's say I was doing that and I got out of hand. So I decide that I'm never going to stop at that pizzeria again on the way home from work. I have a little bit of a honeymoon period. And then your brain goes, where the F is my pizza? Where's my pizza? Um, and you're going to feel a worse craving than you've ever felt before, most likely. And if you don't understand how this works, you're probably going to say, this doesn't work. This is going to be torture. I can't take this. I'm going to have these horrible cravings forever. But that's not true. That's what's called an extinction burst, and if you write it out, it'll then start to go down in a straight line um, with a couple of little bumps, somewhere around the 20 to 30 day mark. And then your brain will label the craving as dormant. Uh, Now, I want to talk a little bit more about what that means and what it actually means to have a craving in the first place.
0: Okay, can I ask you something about what you just said about actually making it over that hump there? Mm-hmm. Is there something to be said for having some micro successes along the way? Like you actually did not cave into a craving. And can you look back the next day and be like, I actually can do that. I actually am not the, at the whim of this pig that, you know, I thought I was, maybe I am becoming uh, something of the apex. But it, it's,
1: it's critical to do that. It's mm-hmm. critical. Most people collect evidence of failure. Yeah. they, They wait until they make a mistake and then they go, why can't I stop eating? I'm pathetic. I'm a loser. There's no way I could ever do this. It turns out that's just your inner pig trying to make you feel too weak to resist the next, the next indulgence. Um, if you, if you say, why can't I stop eating? Questions direct the evidence that we collect. So you're directing your brain to collect evidence that you can't stop eating sooner or later you're going to have a failure identity. You're going to believe you can't stop eating. If you collect small evidence of success, I I mean, it can be really small. You know, like I I had 19 cookies, but I left the last one on the plate or ate a whole pizza, but I didn't eat the box like, like, like ridiculously small, five five cupcakes is better than 15. That's what I'm trying to say Mm. and ask yourself, how did I do that? And how can I eat even less next time? How how can I, how can I improve? You're directing your brain to find evidence of success. You will eventually develop a success identity. So that, that is part of powering through is collecting evidence of success. Yes.
0: Okay. Thank you. I'm sorry. I hope I didn't, uh, Take you oh, no, off no, no. track there.
1: You can interrupt me anytime.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I find this very, very interesting. I got a lot more questions for you coming up, but I, but you seem like you're right on a roll. So. Okay.
1: Well, because this, this is this is the last piece of what's different about the new book mm-hmm. is really understanding the, the science of cravings. Um, cravings are not a sign of a disease or a disorder or a condition in almost all cases. I mean, you can ask your doctor to be sure, but in almost all cases, it's the sign of a healthy brain doing its job. It's just that 100,000 years ago, this would have been a good thing. Now, it doesn't work in the modern food environment. Let's go back 100,000 years ago. If we were not motivated to develop cravings and go find food, we would have starved. Food was not so easily available. So we had to be hyper alert and hyper focused on signals in the environment that would show us that we could find food in a more efficient way. For example, let's think about a caveman, let's call him Thag, T-H-A-G. Okay, suppose Thag um, sees a monkey and he follows that monkey to a banana tree and Thag gorges himself on bananas. It was one of the easiest ways he ever found to get a whole bunch of banana calories. Um, and he would have gorged himself and that would have been a survival advantage too in a scarce food environment because he didn't know when he was gonna find the next tree. So having the cravings and desiring to eat too much is actually part of your healthy brain doing its job. It's it's normal and natural. Um, So FAG then would get very excited about monkeys. Monkeys would have become a signal for the availability of food. Today they would call it a trigger. I don't really like that word. It's more of a food signal. Um, So that's one of the second, that's the second thing you need to know about cravings. Cravings are associated with signals. So overeating, It's not a unitary habit. It's usually a collection of habits. For example, if I drive past a pizza place every day and I make a rule that says I'll never go in to that pizza place on the way home, at the end of 30 days, my brain will have probably labeled that signal, the pizza place, as dormant. Um, And what that means, by the way, is because the brain is very efficient, It no longer wishes to waste energy motivating me to go inside the pizza place. It's going to motivate me to go find calories someplace else. Um, What, what then happens if I also wind up at my dad's place to play poker and it turns out that we usually have pizza at his place. I only see him once every six weeks or so. All of a sudden I'm at my dad's place, the poker game starts and I find myself with this ridiculously intense craving for, for pizza. Well, Without my understanding of cravings, I would have thought that I failed. I would have said, this doesn't work. Obviously, my cravings are not gone. It's impossible. With the understanding that cravings are associated with signals, I would then say, oh, I didn't fail. I succeeded at extinguishing the pizza place as a food signal for pizza. I did not succeed at extinguishing my dad's place as a food signal for pizza. And I just have to go through an extinction curve at my dad's place. Usually about 80% of a person's problem with cravings are associated with a daily craving and a particular signal. And so you can make tremendous progress pretty quickly, but you do have to be on the lookout for these secondary signals that also need an extinction curve to happen.
0: But what about, say, a holiday like Thanksgiving, which comes once a year and it's intense?
1: So... It'll take between 20 and 30 extinction exposures where you're exposed to the food signal and you don't reward it to really um to really extinguish the craving. So you have to rely on some other methods to get that extinguished. Um you I, I like people to write emails to themselves and schedule them to to arrive way down the road. So maybe your higher self, maybe the way that you've chosen. I'm gonna back up for a second. Sure. I need to explain how a little more about how cravings are extinguished before I can explain how to work with something like Thanksgiving. Could you could you make a note and bring me back for that? Certainly, yeah. Okay, no problem. So, craving the reason you get the where the F is my pizza response, the extinction burst, is because in nature, um, food could have become intermittently available. Like, for example, suppose as the season wore on, Fag found that monkeys sometimes led him to barren trees. Fag would not stop following monkeys because an 80% reliable food signal is better than no food signal at all in a barren food environment. Um, As a matter of fact, a monkey that led him to a tree 20% of the time would still be better than a monkey that led him to, to no tree at all. So the extinction burst is really your brain saying, I need to be sure that the food signal has not become it intermittently re- rewarded, that it's not mm-hmm. intermittently available. Um, inter- and this is one of the reasons that what we call variable ratio reinforcement or intermittent random rewards are among amongst the most addicting food reward ratio that we can find. Um, This is why you get those little old ladies stuck at the slot machines in Las Vegas, because they don't know when it's going to pay off. And they're just got to be there, got to be there, got to be there, got to be there. Now, this will lead up to your Thanksgiving question. Imagine that we have a slot machine that only pays off on Saturday mornings at 10 o'clock. Do you think those little old ladies are going to stay there all week long and pull with a lever? They're not they're going to they're going to fight for that machine at 10 o'clock on saturday morning right but they're not going to pull the lever all week long um if you make the reward ratio very fixed and specific if you design a reward ratio that's fixed and specific your brain will learn that the calendar or a particular environment or whoever, whatever specificity you use that that context is part of the trigger and it will only trigger the craving when that context is there, that's that's why we have red lights and green lights and yellow lights, and we know what to do with all of them because our brain knows, you know, you can only engage in this behavior when this particular, you know, signal is is lit. So, one of the worst things you can do is randomly give in to your cravings. If you're trying to get over eating too much pizza, one of the worst things you can do is just stop once in a while when you really feel like it. That that's like designing a Las Vegas slot machine. If you don't want to give up pizza, and two out of three people seem to be able to moderate with these techniques, Um, and it it varies by substance, it varies by person. Um, Maybe you have to give up pizza, but you don't have to give up sugar. It, It really varies. But let's say you don't want to give up pizza. If you say, I will only ever have pizza on a Saturday afternoon after my workout, or Saturday and Wednesday, and only two slices, make it very specific, then you've created a conditional reward system we call it eating by design and your brain will extinguish all the other situations and most people are able to do that okay most people that i work with like to have thanksgiving christmas and new years as a conditional exception so suppose your everyday rule is that i you know i i will never eat flour and sugar again a lot of people do that it's you don't have to do that a lot of people do
0: you did that you do that don't you
1: i on a very rare occasion i will plan out some flour i don't i don't need sugar it just doesn't work i just want
0: i i I get that well even that's hard because sugar comes in so many forms um but how do you avoid flour completely
1: um it's it's not that hard Really? It's, I mean, I, I I I know where it is and I just don't eat it. It's it's not that hard. I uh, mean, this I, is this is after 18 years, though. You don't you don't have to jump right into that. I,
0: I guess when I read about that, I'm thinking, oh God, what I eat in a day, uh, throughout two or three meals in a day, I think I, almost everything I eat contains some kind of a flour. You know, well, lots it's, of bread. It's
1: a, it's a convenient way of getting a lot of calories in a small space. Mm. And in our busy world, we're driven to to do that. You know in nature, we would have been picking fruit all day long, and we just it's hard to find the time to eat enough fruit for calories or, or nuts for calories or something, or, or even you know, small, lean game or something. It's, it's hard to find enough time to eat enough um, otherwise. But I became convinced over the years that I was giving up more by continuing to have it um, than I would give up if I didn't have it. And so I, I deal with an inconvenience, I do some food prep, I, I buy by the case. Buy my produce by the case and I, mm. wow. I ate a lot of produce. Yeah. Nice. Yes. Nice. Now also say there's,
0: there's something to be said for the quality of the flour in the U S today. It's said that, you know um, um what's the word when you can't gluten, gluten intolerant. Yeah. yeah, And uh it's said to be so on the rise in the past couple of decades here in the U S but most of these people could go to Europe and eat the pasta and bread and stuff and be just fine because it's not heavily processed the way we do it here. Is that's that my, that's my understanding, which is uh yet another pathetic thing to think about that we've done in this country. The farming, the way what we farm here, no more it, it, it's mono uh is it monoculture crop monocrop uh versus you know, when I was in school, I remember we were taught that what farmers would do is rotate their crops so that the f- the soil would remain. Oh, full.
1: right, right, right. We're depleting do the that. vitamins in the soil now. now.
0: Now we just rely on fertilizers and yeah. th- then spray the, all the corn with Roundup, whatever that chemical name is. And so that's a large part of the way our food is getting infected and downgraded. In that mm-hmm. way, but I'm sorry, you were t- you were finishing up the about the holiday stuff, and most people are using the holidays as their exception, so they can still keep their the regular rules. Yeah, so, so
1: so they'll say on Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's, I can have one main dish and one dessert of my choosing, and I find that's very effect- effective for two out of three people. Yeah, so yeah. so so you you can work that out, you can work that out, but understanding the way that cravings work stops you from telling yourself that there's something wrong with you or that you're broken or powerless. It it allows you to take the cravings extinction process seriously. So for example, if you were going to give up flour, you would want to ask yourself, well, what am I going to eat during this time? I can't just take so many calories out of my diet without figuring out, am I going to have more beans? Am I going to have more greens? Am I going to have more fish? Am I going to have more fruit? Where am I going to get those calories from? Um, The big mistake that most people make is when they decide they're going to be good, they become over-restrictive and they keep themselves on this feast and famine roller coaster. Um, And, you know, being over-restrictive usually rebounds the other way because it causes that level of organismic distress that we talked about. And then your pig says, screw it, just do it. And um, then you binge and then you say, well, I have to be really, really good again. And it's a it's a cycle that people have trouble getting out of.
0: Well, let me ask you that. So on the occasion that you do fail, that you do um, not listen to your regular rules, you went outside and and so now you're telling the pig that it's possible to break those rules. You're probably really down on yourself there. You're probably going to feel like giving up. Because this is impossible. How do you deal with that? Just one failure right there. What do you do? What what, what you want to do
1: is commit with perfection, but forgive yourself with dignity. You see, m- most people address that problem by saying, well, progress, not perfection. I just have to aim with progress and not perfection. That That's an appropriate attitude after a mistake. If If you make a mistake, you need to think of an Olympic archer. It, they aim for the bullseye and they aim with the totality of their soul. Like even Olympic archers only hit the bullseye 30 or 40 percent of the time, but they still aim with the totality of their soul. They're not thinking maybe I'll make it, maybe I won't. I'll do the best that I can. They they see the arrow going into the target before they let it go. But if they miss the, the target, they don't say, oh my god, I'm a pathetic archer. Uh, I might as well just shoot all the arrows into the audience or up in the air, right? Um, or if you touch a hot stove, you don't say I'm a pathetic hot stove toucher. I, m- I might as well just put my whole hand down it. Um, y- you, you have to commit with perfection because if you don't, the anxiety and doubt and uncertainty about just trying for a little while until you don't feel like it anymore, that's going to drain your energy from focusing on the goal. And that's, that's why the psychology of winning is committing with perfection. But if you do make a mistake, You feel the pain for the moment. You're supposed to feel a little pain for the moment if you touch a hot stove or you miss the bullseye, enough to get your attention. And then you turn that guilt into responsibility. By how much and in what direction did I miss? How do I adjust my aim? With food, it has to do with, okay, what caused me to say, screw it, just do it? If I could replay that day again, what would I have done? Or was there a loophole in my plan? Or maybe the target was too high to start with. Maybe it was too difficult to target to start with and I need to lower the target a little bit and be easier on myself so I have more experience of success. Um, and and then you recognize that the perseveration on guilt and self-castigation is really just your pig trying to make you feel too weak to resist the next pinch. You know, it, it's going to... It's going to call you a loser. It's going to say that you're pathetic. It will try to come up with some global explanation about why this happened. This is not possible. This works for other people. Glenn can do it, but you can't do it. As opposed to, you know, I had an unforeseen stressful meeting in the morning. I didn't figure out with my wife um, what I was going to have for lunch if I couldn't go to lunch with her and if I had it to do over again, I would have had a talk, I would have prepared something, um, and I would have done a little deep breathing before I before I, before I ate. So you turn guilt into responsibility. That's just like readjusting your aim, um, and then you get up and you aim with perfection again. Commit with perfection, forgive yourself with dignity.
0: Okay, that's uh, that's good advice. That makes me wonder. So that you don't suffer too many failure failures, do you teach people to start with, easy rules, like maybe in work your way up so that you experience, you have a high chance of experiencing success and then add, add another day to your rule book? Is that what you teach?
1: Yeah, you, you got to go to kindergarten before you go to college. Go. That's it, a it, good way to put it. it. Unless there's some emergency, if there's a medical emergency and you really have to do this quickly, then we have to do what we got to do. But there are several things that happen if you start with one simple rule. The question I ask people to get them started is, what is one thing you could and would do that would make a big difference, but it's not too onerous. It seems easy and you could definitely do it. But, like there's this truck driver who had 150 pounds to lose, but he had to eat out at fast food places, truck stops three times a day. Yeah. And he says, I'm not going to stop eating fast food. I just can't do it. But I'll tell you what, I won't go back for seconds. And starting, it was a low bar, an admittedly low yeah. bar but it was a bar and it, w- it was moving in the right direction as opposed to the wrong direction. Yeah. He observed himself not going back for seconds and having even one thing you do with success, one behavioral change that you make consistently with success starts to trigger the identity function where you say, maybe I'm a person who doesn't go back for seconds. Right. Nice. Yeah. A- and, and then character trumps willpower because you ask people, could you never go back for seconds ever again in your life? Will go. No, I can't do that. So could you become a person who doesn't go back for seconds? they will say, "Yeah, I think I could do that." Character trumps willpower. It's a shortcut for what you do at the moment of temptation. Mm-hmm. And the other reason the low bar really works is that even though we have these great motivational techniques that'll amp up your motiv- your motivation, some days you wake up without without your mojo. No matter what you do, yeah. right? Yeah. And If you got a low bar, you'll jump over the low bar. If you've got a high bar when you don't feel like it, you're not going to do it. And then you lose the value of the identity function and that consistency. So we start with a low bar, usually just for a couple of weeks. And then people will say, well, my pig is jumping to other things. And I feel like I really have to attend to some of these other foods. But now they're doing that from a place of success. Now, Hmm. Now their pig has become significantly weaker because they can't say you're you're powerless, you're pathetic, you can't do this anymore. Now they're coming from a place of success and they can um, they can move themselves forward. So that's what we do. And then we build them one rule at a
0: time. Okay. So I think you're getting it, uh, the answer to this question. How can we think less about food and more about life? You really relate a good story about your own life in both of those books about how as successful as you are, uh, as a psychologist, that you would find yourself thinking about food in important times. So how how do you get over that hump?
1: So you get over that hump by defining your most important food decisions beforehand. Um, it's, it's back to the slot machine analogy. You're, if you're thinking about when is it going to pay off and it could pay off at any time, then you're going to be thinking about it all the time. But if I know that I only have chocolate on Saturdays at 10 a.m. after a workout, then it's a waste of energy for my brain to be thinking about chocolate all week long. Um, it's it's like prisoners that are given a life sentence. They, they don't really want hope because hope is inefficient. It's a waste of energy. Now, if we don't we don't crave things that we're never going to do. I, I learned that from Jack Trimpey who wrote Rational Recovery. We don't we don't crave things that we ne- that we're never going to have. So what you want to do is think through all of the danger points and ask yourself, what role do I want that food to play in my life? What role do I want that food behavior to play in my life? And then make decisions about them beforehand and code them in these rules so that there's no purpose to your brain wasting energy on thinking about it. No food decisions to make, no difficult food decisions to make, nothing to think about. And it's almost miraculous how quickly – um, and within a month or two, people are just not thinking about food all the time when they really embrace this this technique. So that's how you do it.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Does this play into that rule? I've, I've heard a, a little controversial, I guess, but about the habit thing. I've heard a lot of people believe that it takes 21 days to make or break a habit. And thinking the way you think is a habit.
1: Um, It's... it. Differs, it depends upon what type of a habit you're making and what, what behavioral tools you're using to change it. Like, you know, punishment works a little bit different than reinforcement and um,
0: Which works my, better? Positive reinforcement or negative?
1: But, well, I think negative reinforcement. i Negative reinforcement is different than punishment. Actually,
0: ne- negative reinforcement oh. is when you
1: take negative reinforcement is when you take something positive away if the behavior recurs. Like if I, you know, you're not going to get your allowance this week. You normally get your allowance. You're not going to get it this week. So that's not punishment. Punishment, punishment, is, <laughs> p- punishment is if I were going to shock you if you didn't do your homework. Oh,
0: okay,
1: right. Um, so it, p- punishment has side effects. Uh, it's not that it doesn't work, but it has side effects and. It um it it seems just much more humane to work with positive reinforcement and we we work if not entirely then almost entirely with positive reinforcement
0: um, nice i know with training a dog it's supposed to be much more effective than uh the punishment which would be a shock collar yeah. so you know, i i i'm terrible at, at both so um but uh, i read about it i try to get yeah. done with my dog yeah. charlie who's I, over I, there
1: <laughs> I had 125 hand overman pincher, so I've I've been through dog training. It's right, it's, right, it
0: gets, right, It's not easy. Yeah. Okay. I got a question for you that uh because I know that we're winding up, I have a certain amount of questions I want to squeeze in here. This one's going to be out of left field for you.
1: Okay. Bring it on. With
0: your methodology of this, which to me is groundbreaking and very different. And I think a lot of people this will make sense to. Um, but Okay, so personifying this part of your personality as the pig, or if you want to substitute something else, you've mentioned that before, something else works better for you. We have a lot of Christians in, in my audience here. My, my usual co-host is Christian, and therefore, uh, he brings a lot of people. If you're working with Christians or someone of a different religious faith, do you adjust? I'm thinking if maybe you're doing one-on-one psychology with them. Do you adjust your training to that? So well, their people, motivations people,
1: were- people can call their lower self the devil if they want to or think of the devil and watch what I was getting and at. angel on yeah. another shoulder we actually disproportionately appeal to religious people oh um, which was a surprise to me yeah it was also price to me that we appeal to so many women i thought this was just going to appeal to men because it's such an alpha dog thing yeah uh, but 95 percent of my clients are women
0: Wow, this is yeah. you have not mentioned that in anything that I've read. This is very much a surprise to me. But to, you said like two thirds have uh, are, uh lean more into a religious background,
1: correct? At least, yeah. Wow, At least,
0: yeah, no, that, that that blows my mind because I would have thought that it was the people without that condition, the conditioning of religious that 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 you would be supplying that fill in a gap.
1: Well, well, it's it's just that the world is really a perfect storm for overeating today so um yeah. it, it's I don't think that the religious conditioning gives as methodical an approach to overcoming these behaviors um but they take to it because they're they're used to thinking of you know the desires of the flesh versus desires mm-hmm. of the higher self and, and um they're comfortable with the concept of an evil entity and um, yeah I yeah. think that's why they, that why they take to it but, okay, um, I, I'm not an expert on religion at all. So I, I can't, sure. I can't tell you.
0: I think you and I stand at about the same place as far as that goes, I, I, just by a couple of th- comments that you've made, but I believe in a higher power. I just not quite sure what it is, but um, mind is totally open to all of that. I want to ask you about, I think it's a chapter in your book. I, I found it in the table of contents, but I don't remember what you said to this. I find this interesting. Automate motivation at the moment of impulse. Automate motivation. This is what's interesting. To
1: me. I, I'm going to have to do this relatively quickly because unfortunately sure. I have a call at, at um, 1130. Okay. Um, so um, there's something in psychology called operant conditioning. Um, I can go back to my, my dog, my 125-pound German yeah. Pinscher. I accidentally taught him to sneeze for cheese. A behavior that is followed by a food reward is more likely to be repeated. He was once walking by the refrigerator. This was before I was a Whole Foods person and I was eating a piece of American cheese and he happened to sneeze and I gave him a piece of cheese just because he was there, not because I wanted to reinforce the sneeze. But you could see his wheels turning. He sits down, he looks at me and he goes, sneeze equals cheese. And so he sneezes again. (laughs) It's like I gave him a piece of cheese and then I said, good sneeze for cheese, Damien, good sneeze for cheese. It turns out that works with thoughts also. So when you say, I'll just start tomorrow, and then you eat the chocolate, you're more likely to think, start tomorrow, tomorrow. And that's why it cycles downwards. Yeah. You can use that process in your favor. If you have a thought or a mantra that you want to say every time before you eat, that thought will start to take more prominence, especially before you think about acquiring calories. So if every time before you eat, you you say, one bite's a tragedy, one bite offline is a tragedy, I always use the present moment to be healthy, then instead of having these justifications pop up at the moment of impulse, you'll start to have these, um, these refutations or the you know, motivational statements that you want to pop up will start to pop up at the moment of impulse. It's This isn't immediate, you have to do it for a month or two before it really starts to work, but it makes a difference. It does automate your motivation at the moment of impulse.
0: Okay, I'm going to get you out of here, but boy, there's a lot more too, and you started, just started there talking about the present. You talked a lot about the present versus the future, and we are nothing but a series of moments in the present, and that's very important to what you teach. I also want to just mention, at the end of your book, you talked a lot about how much community support Helps in the recovery aspect here, even if you're somewhat of an introvert. So, uh-huh. again, I want to encourage people to go, go to the book to uh, find these very important aspects here. I will also, uh, Dr. Glenn, I'll also put your, your, uh, uh, Defeat link in here in the book, neverbingeagain.com, and the link to your book on, Am- books on Amazon. Is there I, any? I,
1: I, I would prefer that people just read Defeat Your Cravings at this point. It, it leaves them a little straight to read the old, over books. If you mm-hmm. go to Defeat and click the big blue button, You'll get a free copy for Kindle, Nook, or PDF. Um, you'll also get a set of recorded coaching sessions so you can see how this works in practice. And a set of food plan starter templates for just about any dietary philosophy. We're, we're diet agnostic. As long as you have a reasonable nutritional plan, you can do it. your cravings.com, click the big blue button.
0: Nice, that's perfect. Okay, it's 1130, you gotta go. I gotta that, go, I'm sorry. I, I, I just really appreciate your time and I hope we can do it again.
1: Anytime, Darryl. <laughs> All right.
0: All right. You have a good weekend. Thank you. All right.
1: Thank you.